Welcome to the Oregon Business Broadcast. I'm reporter Caleb Deal. Uh, I just finished up writing our February cover story on Nat Parker. You might know Nat Parker from Globe Sherpa, the startup that built TriMet mobile ticketing. And now he's got a new job as CEO of Movil North America, a Daimler subsidiary with the mission of creating an operating system for urban mobility where shared vehicles and public transit and a whole variety of other modes work together to get you where you need to go. And I'm going to play you a few excerpts of our hour and a half long interview and we talk second grade Nat's experience on public transit, uh, what it's like to sell mobile payment to a corrupt public official on the payroll of the ticket machine companies, uh, and how Parker thinks we should solve Portland's rush hour gridlock, among a whole host of other topics. So without further delay, here's Nat Parker. Yeah, let's just start all the way at square one. Uh, how'd you first become interested in transportation? Oh my gosh. Um... So I grew up uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, northern Virginia, <laughs> and I was a latchkey kid. So um, is that a regional term? I'm not sure. Extended day. So I, I grew up with a single mom um, primarily, and so I would stay at school at Nottingham Elementary School after school. Um, and starting in the second grade, I, I started taking Taekwondo. Um, and the, um, the studio was in Falls Church, so it was like a 15-minute drive from where I lived in Arlington. Um, and my mom was at work the whole time, so she couldn't take me. My dad worked. So my dad um, trained me how to ride public transit, beginning in Mrs. Stiegel's class in second grade. Right. So he like hooked me up with this lanyard, this laminated lanyard, like take it to the East Falls Church Metro, transfer to the whatever, sit behind the driver, don't trust anybody, all this stuff. But um, starting in second grade, I started riding public transit. Nice. Um, and how was second grade Nat's experience as a transit user? And awesome. has any of that informed awesome. your, kind of the decisions you make today? Yeah, it was, um, for me, it was freedom. It, I mean, I very quickly deviated from just the route to the Oriental Sports Academy, OSA. Um, and I started taking the train downtown. Um, one of the, be the beautiful things about D.C. is that the Smithsonian um, and all of the museums are totally free. So kids can come and go. So for me, it was like this. It just unlocked so much um, opportunity and places to visit. And my parents were pretty lax, as you can imagine. They trusted me. So um, meeting all kinds of people, seeing every different sort of color, face, language, to me was inspiring. Um, and I think that's one of the things about transportation that motivates me today is public transit in particular is this like commons, you know, of our democracy. Um, at a time when things are quite polarized in our society, you can still get on the bus, still get on the train and really see all walks of life. Um, and I, I find that interesting. Definitely. Um, so take me through kind of the origin story of Globe Sherpa. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I moved out here in 2001, came from the D.C. area, worked in nonprofits for quite some time, so sort of a non-traditional background to becoming a, a business person. Hmm. Um, I had been a lobbyist for the Sierra Club, um, so worked on conservation and sort of public interest environmental issues, mm -hmm. um, ran political campaigns, primarily did lobbying and advocacy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of experience working with government. 
Um, I then went on and took a little two-year hiatus and was a Peace Corps volunteer in Senegal, in West Africa. And that was another kind of eye-opening experience. Mm -hmm. And it was there um, that I sort of realized, holy holy smokes, um, (laughs) I'm an entrepreneur. Like, I didn't really know I was an entrepreneur. But what's funny is, you know, young people in the United States at least those who are are relatively well-to-do often suffer from this existential dilemma. Like, what do I want to be? What do I, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up? Yeah. And in Senegal, that doesn't exist. It's like everyone's hustling. Everyone's looking for a way to get by and to do well and to take care of their family. Um, And that was inspiring to me because business became this, like, thing that everyone did. Mm -hmm. And I found myself coming up with all kinds of different business ideas And so when I came back to the U.S. um, in 2009, I said, I think I want to go into business. Like, my parents were federal government (laughs) workers, no background in business. Um, So I decided to apply for my MBA at Portland State University. I didn't want to leave Portland, wanted to stay around here. Um, And in my first marketing class of that program, the professor, Brian McCarthy, said, I want you to write a business plan for a product or a service of your choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been an ecotourism extension agent in Senegal, so my job was to help build small businesses associated with national parks across mm-hmm. the country and then train the local communities how to run a business. Oh, cool. And um, I came back, and I would look at like the Lonely Planet Guide or the Fromer's Guide, and I'm like, this sucks. Like, It's totally out of date. It's inaccurate. And around the same time, the iPhone debuted. Mm. And it just occurred to me, what if you could have a travel guide on your smartphone? Mm -hmm. And today that sounds ridiculous, but in 2009, it was pretty novel. Right. So I was fascinated by this technology and what it could do. Um, Wrote this plan for Globe Sherpa, a guide to your world. And it was essentially, how do I get around? What are my options? What can I learn from other people's experiences? Um... I wrote the plan, and one of the guys in my cohort, Michael Gray, read the plan and said, holy shit, this is amazing. Are you going to do this? Um, And I said, you know, I don't know the first thing about software. It's just an idea. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm a software engineer. I think we should get together. And he and I got together and had beers that afternoon, and it was the beginning of, like, a huge man crush, like, let's go out and let's be entrepreneurs and do something together. Yeah. So we iterated through multiple ideas um, and actually landed at the notion that the public sector was a great space to start a business. Mm-hmm. And that may be counterintuitive to yeah, a venture capitalist kind of like or someone else, but mm-hmm. what seemed so clear to me was that the public sector was woefully underserved by good technology, in particular mobile, which Mm. was very fresh and very new. And so um, it was also a space where I knew I wanted to get into a business that had a repeatable activity and repeatable revenue. Mm -hmm. So like um, one of my mentors was the CEO of a payments company in town called Vesta Corporation. And he was like, look, look for a small transaction that happens all the time. Mm. So for me, ticketing and payment was this idea. People are parking all the time. They're using transit all the time. How do we make that easier? And so parking was the spot where I landed. Mm. So I came up with the idea of parking Sherpa. Find your parking space and pay for it with your smartphone. Mm. And I ended up calling a buddy of mine who was the mayor's economic development liaison. 
Um, and he said, this is brilliant. Like, let's get you a meeting with our head of parking. Right. And I'm like, shit, okay, this is great. So I, I put my suit on, I get my business pitch together, and I go and I pitch this guy. And I say, hey, find your space, pay for it with, with mobile. And he looks at me and he says, Nat, nobody trusts mobile payment. <laughs> and he said, we're exceedingly pleased with the smart meters that we have here in town. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking these green machines that say, like, you know, card not read, card error. They yeah. spit out a little piece of paper. You have to, like, flick the window thing. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, terrible. Yeah. Well, Michael, my business partner at the time, said, so how'd it go? Did we get a deal? Get a contract? I'm like, I totally... Like, I, I screwed it up, man. He wasn't into it. Mm-hmm. Well, four months after this meeting, this gentleman, Ellis McCoy, who was the head of parking for mm-hmm. the city of Portland, was indicted by the FBI oh, wow. for taking 140 grand in bribes from Schlumberger and Calais, the smart meter manufacturers. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah. unbeknownst to me, this guy was on the payroll. Um, and in the space of his having rejected me around parking, he uh-huh. said, well... Transit is the other great use case for mobile payment. Yeah. So I started cold calling TriMet. Oh, okay. And I went I looked up the staff directory to mm. TriMet. I got to the letter S and Tom Strader, senior fair policy analyst, mm-hmm. agreed to have a cup of coffee with me. And I said, I'd like to introduce you to Transit Sherpa. Find <laughs> your bus and pay for it from your smartphone. Right. And that was the beginning of what has become a really fruitful relationship with TriMet, City of Portland. Sorry about that. Um And so, you know, one of my experiences is that Portland was progressive. They were willing to take a risk and to take a chance on, you know, an entrepreneur with a good idea and a new technology. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we found was that they were paying upwards of 20% the cost of every ticket they issue Mm -hmm. through these vending machines that are expensive to invest in, to upkeep. They send armored trucks and vans to pick up, you know, cash and coin and then put it into a money room where Mm -hmm. union employees are like, like going through this. So we were able to reduce the cost of fare collection by up to 60% by driving sales through the mobile channel and doing all digital reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And it also afforded a great convenience to end users who don't have to, you know, sit around and find exact change or go to one of these machines. I mean, I have great candid photographs of people like doing this at yeah. the ticket vending machine because they couldn't get a ticket. Yeah. And then they're having this crisis like do I hop on the tr- on the on the max and like risk a citation or yeah. do I wait 15 minutes for the next train? Right, yeah. And again, these there. aren't like monumental problems in the grand scheme of things, but the idea that we can alleviate just a little bit of the pain of mm-hmm. the daily commute was was real and it resonated with people for sure so i was able to get trimet to sign this mou that i very craftily drafted i didn't have a lawyer i didn't have any money at the time but i I was like googling mous found a good template put it together Mm -hmm. and it essentially said if we build a smartphone fair payment system um, TriMet will pay us X percent of every transaction. Mm. And I was able to leverage that to raise the first $500,000 for Globe Sherpa. Wow. And once I had that, I quit my day job. I was working uh, as a renewable energy developer, project mm. manager. Um, and I hired my first five people. And 
in about 18 months, we built the nation's first mobile payment system for mm. public transit. How is it for you coming from the startup world with Globe Sherpa and adjusting to this corporate <clears throat> culture? Um, what do you find challenging? What are the opportunities there? Yeah. Um, make no mistake, this is a big company that we that we work with, right? We're we're in a you know seventy billion dollar multinational company with hundreds of thousands of employees. This is not a small startup. When I sold Globe Sherpa, we were twenty seven people. Um, in in the last two years, you know, as you know, we've scaled considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a challenge for me to balance maintaining that sort of startup magic, that agility, that irreverence in some respects um, about breaking the rules, trying things, failing, um, getting out there with having a responsible, thoughtful, scalable strategy that's in the context of Daimler. But the beauty is that Daimler itself has said, we want you to retain a lot of that quality. Mm -hmm. We want you to have independence. So we don't adhere to the same set of regulations and policies that the core business does. We have a a Mm -hmm. lighter framework of compliance and this kind of thing, which is great. Um, We are not branded as Daimler. We have a separate brand that affords us more independence as we go out and try new things. Um, And yet at the same time, we have the benefit of a going concern in the form of a very good budget, fantastic facilities, and sort of that long-term security of Daimler's balance sheet, right? Mm-hmm. So those are, those are the good ties. For me, it's challenging. Um, you know, PowerPoint is, is almost a religion in big company operations. <laughs> um, you know, in the past, sitting around and talking about an idea over beer and coming to a decision, that doesn't pass muster <laughs> in the context of a big company. So right. there's more formalized process, but it's also kept me on my game. You know, I've been learning a lot too. Mm-hmm. And um, what was surprising and is continuously surprising to me is that the line that I have to senior management of the whole company is quite short. Mm. I mean, I'll be sitting with the, the CFO of all of Daimler. Um, on Monday, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I was just this startup guy. What do you see as the solution to the rising congestion in the Portland area? Do you support congestion pricing or other solutions? Demonstrably congestion pricing and, um, providing, providing, um, incentives as well as punitive consequence for driving when it's when it's tough Mm. it's the only thing that has been proven to work right so widening highways creates induced demand and does not solve the problem and we know that there's some exceptions right there's some interchanges in places like um you know the moda center and rose quarter that would benefit from some upgrades there's the columbia river crossing which probably has some infrastructure that that merits some upgrades but fundamentally we're not fans of just adding lanes it just adds to the problem and congestion pricing time of day pricing is absolutely one of the most effective means to go after it Um, so you know i mean we i don't look forward to a world of having toll roads for every single place i go yeah um on the other hand i think the data demonstrates that people respond to that kind of consequence it's a big reason that we're not saying, hey, we don't want people out of cars completely, right? We still sell cars, for goodness sake. 
Um, but the notion is let's provide people a set of choices so they can make the decision that's best for them. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's borne out, I think, in the data of our users, right? Some people are not big commuters on public transit, but if they're going to a Blazers game, if they're going to a Timbers game, parking sucks. Mm-hmm. They don't want to deal. Um, and so public transit makes sense for them during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I do think that the solutions are largely driven around a lot of public policy that not only provides consequence to driving your own vehicle, but also which provides incentive for people to take alternative modes. I'll give you one other example. We have a product um, where we can we can give employers and universities a portal mm-hmm. where they can upload all of their students or their employees, and they can provide a subsidy to them to purchase a transit pass. Right. So saying, hey, we're gonna we're gonna pay fifty percent of your um, you know of your monthly bus pass if you use this. That's a great way of getting people motivated. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that that's gonna solve real problems. We had a conversation with. Um, Providence healthcare providers whose parking situation is just a disaster right now, right? So they're out in Hollywood, 47,000 employees, their parking is completely constrained. And they're finding that the city of Portland now is coming in and saying, hey, all of your people are parking in the residential neighborhoods around the hospital. This this, this can't continue. Like, you've got to get this under control. Mm-hmm. And I met with them and I said, well, how much do you charge for parking? And I said, oh, we don't. <laughs> yeah, we don't charge for parking. Our board of directors doesn't want to charge. Okay, so, well, start at 12 bucks for the day and tell me what happens, yeah. right? And so we want to work collaboratively, not just with cities and transit agencies, but corporations, mm-hmm. universities, to help them solve their mobility problems. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a, a pretty cool set of solutions that can shave off the edges around around some of these problems Mm -hmm. interesting yeah yeah and then congestion pricing um all the research has demonstrated that has to go hand in hand with transit upgrades um what need for additional need for transit do you see in the portland area well it's funny because you know my eyes go bigger than portland now that we're across multiple cities in the u.s and now we're we're growing internationally Portland is, is, is really lucky in the sense that we have such a very progressive transit agency. Mm. We do have um, fantastic infrastructure relative to a lot of others, vis-a-vis our light rail network, streetcar. The Tillicum crossing itself as a transit-only um, bridge is mm. pretty fascinating. But a couple key things. I think that um, bus rapid transit is a huge opportunity for us to look at capitally efficient mm-hmm. um, and, and very optimized, you know, high-density people movers. Mm-hmm. So the sort of Powell-Holgate corridor um, is an area that I think is very rightfully planned for this kind of service in the future. Mm-hmm. I also think that um, connecting outlying suburbs, whether it's Tigard, Vancouver, um, obviously Milwaukee is there, um, but thinking for the long term about what the infrastructure is required for these bedroom communities, that's going to be really important. Mm. So that's another one. Um, and then there's, there's other basic things, like I said, investment in safety, um, investment in connectivity, mm-hmm. Wi-Fi, um, you know, remaining contemporary and convenient for the end user is also really important. Mm-hmm. So... And then the other thing is, you know, the investments are going to have to change in sort of their shape, right? So 
going after the infrastructure required for internal combustion and diesel buses is one thing. Mm -hmm. Thinking about what's going to be required for a whole network of charging infrastructure for fully electric buses Mm -hmm. and for autonomous vehicles, that's another big one. Mm -hmm. So investment in infrastructure as well for vehicle-to-vehicle communication, vehicle-to-infrastructure communication, this investment of Internet of Things types of sensors on buildings, intersections, stoplights, etc., that's going to be a big part of what we're going to have to provide. You've been listening to the Oregon Business Broadcast, produced by the Oregon Business Editorial Team. Music for today's episode is from Rodrigo Vicente, Today's World. Thanks for listening.